Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Pottywood, the podcast where we talk about movies with the people who make movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always, coughing, coughing, coughing and spluttering is... At least I can get my words out. My not in the edit I'm putting together, you're not. <laughs> oh, you edit? Jesus. Well, my name would be Andrew Roger Carson on any normal day, and today is a normal day. But it is December. I know. It's festive. It's well, it's it's not festive. It's pretty COVID rampant. So Yeah, but we had snow at the weekend. Yeah, no, but I didn't like his music back then. Totally well done. lost on well done. any single person who was not awake in that one week in nineteen ninety three when Informer was everywhere. I, I challenge anyone to tell me any of the lyrics to that song apart from Licky Bum Bum Down. Yeah, it's funny that you remember that bit. Everyone remembers that bit. No one remembers anything apart from the song. They just, everyone, just in school, we were just wandering around in clumps of me and my friends just going, <laughs> Licky Bum Bum Down. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I seem to remember this is really going to push me back now. I think it's Informer. The police said they saw me stab someone down the lane, but I don't have any idea why he was looking his bum bum down. <laughs> I don't know why the, There's some kind of story in there that only Snow can tell us. Yes. It's obviously some kind of patois that we're not familiar with. But you know what? It's it's one of them days where just it's been very long. You're still not um, well, are you? I'm not. This is no. this is ridiculous. It's six weeks. How can you have something for six weeks? I don't know, but anyone that listens to this in the future is just going to think that your entire shtick is coughing and spluttering. I don't know. See, season two has been nearly enough an entire wipeout for me so far. It's <laughs> It sucks. It really sucks. It's like watching a Ricky Gervais movie. <sighs> and speaking of Ricky Gervais movies... Uh, what's in the box last week landed on the 2008? Yes, uh, 2008. Eight. Yes. Oh, see, stepped up a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, comedy of Ghost Town. Town? <laughs> you sounded really <laughs> unsure about all of this. Do you know what the worst thing was? <laughs> When, when I was writing down some like notes and that before, I kept writing Ghost World. And then only realized when I thought, okay, let me just check some information on that. Hang on, what the hell is it? Oh my God, it's the wrong movie. So all of my notes might have been wrong. Yeah, so maybe. As, I, as soon as the show comes along, I am not accidentally going to say Ghost World. And then our listeners are going to tune in and say, that movie was absolutely awesome and Ricky Gervais wasn't even in it, you poser. <laughs> Throughout the whole movie, shit. all I could keep thinking was, this place, uh, it's coming like a ghost town. That's all I could think of, it was just the specials. <laughs> I, I honestly thought you were about to do the challenges of the unknown from Teen Titans Go. No. <laughs> we are the challenges of the unknown. We have come to see the motion picture. That was a really good film. Uh, <sighs> yes, we're getting way off topic here. So, yes, Ghost Town, Ricky Gervais. Now, I'm going to start this review off with uh, with one very, very important piece of information, which I think is important for going forward. I don't find Ricky Gervais funny. And I think we kind of got the gist of that last week, Steve, when we found out that Ghost Town was 
in the box. I'm not also particularly fond of his kind of his his, his shtick as a a persona. We've been into this recently with uh, Natasha Malti uh, last week was was saying about it. You've got your kind of on-screen persona, then you've got your public persona, and then you've got your, your private persona. So I don't know what he's actually like in private. He could be a really good guy, but whenever I see him on TV, I just think, you're a bit of a, yeah, gentleman sausage. Um, I've got to be honest, though. He He was actually quite endurable in this. I I I enjoyed watching this, um, and uh, I thought the character kind of suited him as an actor, as a performer. This kind of um, malcontent dentist who's just happy to lash out at life and just hate everybody in it, kind of like a little bit of a Scrooge kind of person, yeah. which is which yeah. is suitable as we're getting close to Christmas. And um, and he goes in for an, a routine operation and he has an accident with the anesthesio, dies for seven minutes and comes back and finds out he's able to talk to ghosts. Most notably, Greg Kinnear, who is trying to get him to sort out his now ex-wife's new relationship. Because obviously he's passed on. And the ex-wife is played by... Tia Leone, who... Tia Leone. Who we we have had uh, we we have said some things about in the past, but even she even she was actually emoting in this one, and I think I don't. <laughs> that's good. That sounds like such a backhanded compliment. But when that we, is a ba- that's the ba- most backhanded compliment. It's almost like it came from me. Yeah, when we did that Ben Kingsley one, what was it? Just kill me, you kill me, whatever it was. You kill me, yeah. You kill me. Um, yeah, we were saying how she was very, very flat and almost neutral, and there was nothing in it. This is the exact opposite. This is actually a very, very, uh, it's a very warm performance at times. There's a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of heart throughout the whole film, really, particularly in like the last half hour, where spoiler territory. He um, he tries to stop being a bit of a malcontent and starts to help these spirits that have been following him around. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Um, and uh, and and for one of the few times, actually, I actually caught my my girlfriend crying at the end of this movie, instead of me. <laughs> you know, I I've lost count of the number of times, and I will hold my hands up here. Cry at the end of Titanic. I also cry at the end of Philadelphia as well. Oh yeah, that's a tough one though. I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who hasn't. Oh god, that movie! Oh, it just hits you right in the field. Uh, but yeah, there's a few noticeable little things that are worth talking about. Really, you've got uh, you've got Billy Campbell, the Rocketeer himself, who's playing her new love interest, which was great because I was watching him on screen thinking I know him from somewhere, and yeah, he's Cliff Secord. I love that film, um, and it's also written and directed by David Coop. I'm not sure how you pronounce his Coop. Coep, yeah, I'm really not sure how you pronounce his name. So if you're listening to this, David, I do apologize. Um, who's also responsible for the the screenwriting on movies such as um, I think it was Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, um, Jurassic Park, Lost World. It, yes, he wrote uh, Jurassic yes. Park. He also wrote Spider Man. Yeah, with Tobey Maguire. Didn't actually write it with Tobey Maguire. He actually wrote it himself, I believe. <laughs> That'd be fun. Coming down to the casting. Hey, Toby, write this with me. The movie's not written yet. All right. Yeah. Just remember to press record. Yes. <sighs> yeah. 
In case you don't know what uh, what that means, yeah, we just had a really, really fun and interesting discussion, and uh, I didn't press record for the second half of it, so, <laughs> yes, I look like a tit. And not only that, you've missed all of my table falling apart. Yes. <laughs> Everything. Which was so funny. Yeah. It's uh, still falling apart now, so... Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't mind the film. I thought he was. I thought he was pretty decent, really, in terms of, uh, in terms of being what it was, which was kind of an old style movie with an actual well known atheist playing a guy who sees ghosts in a movie. Yes, the irony is writ large, uh, and the laughs are not as large. No, it's not but, laugh out loud funny. No, it's fun. It, it it's chuckle kind of. It's grin humor. Yes. Yes. And uh, I guess uh, Gervais and Kinnear are the ones who ran away with it, really. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the other people are kind of one-dimensional, in my view. Yeah. Kirsten Wig was in it as well. Oh, yes. It's not as funny the third time around, is it? No, I'm exhausted from it now. Yes. In fact, I I hate the movie now, because we spoke about it (laughs) twice before. Oh, God. So, you know what? I'm going to save everyone. You know, just go and watch it if you're interested in Ricky Gervais seeing dead people. Yeah, uh, a movie with not as many laughs as it probably should have, written by the guy who wrote Jurassic Park and Spider-Man, <laughs> starring in a real-life atheist <laughs> that is incredibly familiar to the Robert Downey Jr. movie Heart and Souls from 1993, which I've never heard of. Yes, did you enjoy it? I did actually. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Let's get some anniversaries on the go. <laughs> we watch them again all of the time. Or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. How's your for fuck's sake? <laughs> Is he still falling apart? Well, before well, the music was on, I'd try and actually put the front of the shelf back, well, the front of the drawer back on. And me and Jean fell out. <laughs> me and Jean fell out. I've got a shockwave looking at me, calling me an arsehole. Because <laughs> I look like an arsehole. <laughs> and bloody, there's a Pokemon card in here. My son's been in my drawer. Which means he's probably f***ed it up. And yeah, I've been trying to kind of fix it as we've been going along. And it's just making it worse. Now the, now the actual shelf itself is pushing itself to the back of the unit. And it's like, if you try and pull us out, all of us is going to go. <sighs> so anyway, oh yeah, anniversaries, yeah. 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 Um, can you believe, Steve? Yeah. Again. That 35 years ago this week, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, was released. Yes, I can. Yeah. Was it because I told you earlier on? Yeah, in a previous take. Yes, in a previous take. Did you know that this was directed by Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy, who who, uh, has played Spock? (laughs) You're thinking about the Laserdisc rock again, aren't you? He did, Leonard Nimoy did an instructional video for LaserDisc where he was getting instructions on how to use one off a flashing rock that was beeping like (laughs) R2-D2. It's almost as funny second time. (laughs) 
I wonder, I wonder if that rock had told him that this was easily going to be the most absurd plot of a Star Trek movie other than going hunting for God. Yeah. Because they'd never go that far. No, no. But having said that, though, this is the one which I think everybody likes, whether or not you're a Star Trek fan or you're just kind of like a casual viewer. No, it's not. <laughs> it is. Not at all. That would be First Contact if any movie was. Well, yeah, everyone loves first contact, but that's more more of a like trek heavy kind of thing. This is this is a oh, you know, we're we're off to save the whales here. Och, me Jiminy, och, I the nuclear whistles. <laughs> so, what? There, there is a, a very weird kind of blending there between Scotty and Chekhov. Oh my. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> oh, I am I'm tearing up. I'm tearing up. <laughs> oh dear. Uh. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have to edit out so much of this laughter. Oh, Jesus Christ. <sighs> Hello. <laughs> Try to get over it, stop. The worst thing of all is I can't actually do an impression of George Takei. I just can do an impression of the people that were doing an impression of him on Family Guy. <laughs> Right. Let's let me go blow my nose. For God's sake, okay. don't press pause or anything. I'm not pressing pause now. <sighs> You're back. Where were we? Oh, we were... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, just give me give me some random facts about the film. Come on. We all know it's just like about a giant tub of Pringles that was coming to Earth to kidnap whales or whatever. I don't know. One thing I always find it really weird about uh, Star Trek for The Voyage Home, I think all of the cast may have thought, with the plot being this absurd, I guess they all just decided to wear red, just so they could all be killed off. With the exception of Leonard Nimoy, who was wearing white throughout the entire thing. And he was a director, obviously. He was going to survive it. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, but I'll tell you what, one of the uh, interesting facts here is a lot of people tend to remember the punk on the bus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually know that punk. His name is Kirk R. Thatcher. Hi, Kirk. Hi, Kirk. We, he's on my Facebook, so I'm not he's listening. But uh, it's an interesting first name to have in a Star Trek movie. Mm-hmm. Well, he's also a director, too. And he mm-hmm. directed uh, the movie that came out just this past Halloween called Muppets Haunted Mansion. Ooh, I like the Muppets. Yes. You, you'll enjoy it, actually, if you've not seen it yet. No. It's on Disney+. Plus. Uh, it's actually really funny. I enjoyed it. Okay, cool. I'll have to check that out. We'll get the kids in, kids watching it. I'm going to have to check out Leonard Nimoy's uh, talking to a big red rock. <laughs> it's, it's not red. It's like this grey crystal that's just beeping at him. Great. Fascinating. So it, a disc that about could... laser discs. <laughs> yeah. What was the other thing he did? Uh, it was a Y2K instructional video. 
<laughs> was this about resetting your clock at the turn of millennium or something like that? <laughs> yeah, he, he was, uh, what was it called? It was called the Y2K Survival Guide, and it was all kind of like tips on how to survive Y2K and, you know, how to stop your video recorder from suddenly gaining sentience and taking over the world and all that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> what to do if a 747 crashes into your lounge, you know. That kind of What's thing. What's the most rebellious thing a VCR could do? Not tape strictly when you program it. <laughs> Probably. Spit your tape out at you and eat it. You used to do that anyway. Um, yeah, I guess you're kind of saying it is the most popular one. Although Star Trek Generations, I kind of enjoyed. It, yeah, with the exception of um, Kirk pinwheeling to his death, holding onto that gantry. <laughs> Like, Spinning around like he's on the Gravitron at Alton Towers. Yeah. They made no bones about that being a dummy attached to a bit of metal work, did they? Oh, I'm surprised uh, Tommy Hinckley wasn't at the bottom of that ravine. <laughs> he's probably still pissed off from his previous encounter. Yeah. yeah. I reckon anytime you see like uh, William Shatner do a dive or a jump or anything, Tommy Hinckley's just there on the other end. <laughs> falls should... into him every single time. We should do a super cut of just all the times that William Shatner's fallen over and just record in, in cuttings of Tommy Hinckley just going, ow! <laughs> we should. Uh, anyway, yeah, anyway. Star Trek Four Voyage Home, 35 years old this week. Okay. Can you believe, Steve? Oh, maybe. I don't know. We haven't recorded this bit before. As long as we're recording it now, that's all I care about. Yes. 25 years ago this week, Ted Demi's Beautiful Girls movie was released. Not seen that one, so this particular conversation is not going to be as funny as the last one. Oh, you never know. Ted Demi uh, was a director, God rest his soul. Uh, he directed movies like Blow with Johnny Depp, uh, the Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence comedy Life, where he played two inmates on a chain gang. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also did a, an amazing documentary called A Decade Under the Influence, uh, talking all about the uh, the 70s movie movement from like Easy Rider through to, you know, all of Scorsese, Copeland, stuff like that. It's an amazing documentary. Didn't he also direct Philadelphia? If that was not Ted Demi, it was Jonathan Demi. Oh, it was Jonathan Demi. Was yeah. that Jonathan Demi? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's easy to get them confused. It's like the um, the Levines, you know, Ted Levine and Jerry Levine, the actors. One of them played Buffalo Bill in uh, Silence of the Lambs. Wasn't that also Jonathan Demi that directed Silence of the Lambs? I believe it was Jonathan Dem- Demi who... Oh, Demi. snap! Ooh, six degrees of Demi. Yeah. There you go. Oh. Uh, so it was actually... Um, the, the movie Beautiful Girls was kind of a biographical account of the writer, who was Scott Rosenberg, and it was based around probably what he calls one of his worst ever winters. Uh, he was a writer who was waiting to see if his script, Con Air, was actually going to go and get produced, which obviously... Mm-hmm. It did. And he kind of wrote this in, I think it was five or six days. And he got an amazing cast for it. I mean, you've got people in there like um, Matt Dillon, Mina Savari, uh, Lauren Holly, Natalie Portman, uh, Rosie O'Donnell. Um, you know, he had a really great kind of 20-something role. Uma Thurman was in there as well. And it's a, it's a really funny story. It's really brilliantly written. Uh, Natalie Portman is great in it, and it's just a shame that 
in more recent years, uh, Natalie Portman has labelled this movie as a movie that kind of made sexualization of her, you know, as a minor, because she was playing a, a teenage girl in it. And I think that has had a little bit of a stain on this movie, but it is just an amazing story. It is, it is a great film. It's worth checking out, and it is in the box as well. Okay, well, they're talking about sexualization of um, Padme. Probably does a far less job of uh, sexualizing her than the original script of Leon did. Mm. Yeah, that's just yeah. all, all kinds of bad going on there. It is weird the more that, I guess... I hate to use the term woke because it's just one of those words. It's just, it gets well overused. But I think now it's more of an awareness and you, you kind of look back on films like Leon. Mm-hmm. And I watched the international cut of it, the full uncut version of it. And it's the scenes where um, where Natalie Portman's character kind of asks Leon to sleep with her or something like that. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's... this is, I, I don't know. You know, how did you not kind of pick up on this back then? It, nowadays, you're just kind of more aware of it, and I think that's the best thing that can kind of happen. I mean, there's a lot of films from back in the day where it was, it was kind of creepy, and now it's like, ugh. And now it's super creepy. Yes, it's, yeah. it's even more creepy. Uh, but anyway, uh, not anyway. to take away from Beautiful Girls, uh, it is an amazing movie, uh, really well-written and brilliantly acted by the ensemble cast that they have and is worth checking out. Okay. Well, can you believe, Steve? Let's get a bit festive, shall we? Oh, oh, oh. Finally. Ten years ago this week, Arthur Christmas was released. Which I haven't seen. Ah, oh, well, you know, it's actually all right, actually. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a movie you're only ever going to watch at Christmas, right? And it's it's done by Sony Animation, so it's like the, the fourth best animation studio in town, I guess you'd call it. Um, But it was directed by two people. Uh, One who is Sarah Smith, who has just directed a movie that's just been on release called Ron's Gone Wrong. Oh, yes, that's the the, the robot, isn't it? I guess so. I've not seen it myself. But uh, it has been... It's one of my neighbours went to see it, and that's how I actually knew it existed. And Barry Cook was the other director who was more known for directing the animated movie Mulan for Disney. Right. Which is an all-time classic. Yes, I did see Mulan. With this being a Sony animation film, there are so many references to other Sony animated movies in this (laughs) that I picked up on when watching it again just recently. So in there, you've got a reference to Flushed Away, which is brilliant. Yeah. You've got a reference to The Wrong Trousers in there as well. And you've also got a, a reference to Open Season, which is yeah. If I remember correctly, isn't Arthur Christmas, hasn't that actually got something to do with Aardman animation anyway? I believe so, yes. Right. But, uh, you know, it's a kind of perfect movie for now, really. Kids are all looking for all festive movies. You don't want to trudge through Hallmark and watch all of those guys in sweaters, you know, getting the big city girl who's come back just to visit her family for Christmas and hates it. Yeah, the guy wearing flannel. Yes, that can be absolutely any Hallmark movie. Pretty much. You just have to guess. Point point your finger at one, you've got it. Uh, The one thing I did like about Arthur Christmas, Bill Nye is in it, and he plays Grand Santa, and he is easily the best thing in the entire film, which typically is Bill Nye whenever he's in anything. Are we talking about the British actor, Bill Nye, or are we talking about Bill Nye, the science guy? (laughs) 
not the science guy. Why would the science guy be in an Arthur Christmas movie? Then I don't know. I'm not in charge of the casting. No, it's the other one. All right, okay. The actor. As long as the I know. established British actor. Yes, the one who talks like that. It's a bit twitchy. <laughs> I get afraid really to get wet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> But yes, Arthur Christmas is uh, 10 years old. You can probably find it on all the streaming platforms if you're looking for a good Christmas movie to have with the kids. Yeah, there's probably going to be lots of that this Christmas. Yeah, I guarantee you, Arthur Christmas is going to be on terrestrial TV. Because I'm sure it has been for the last couple of years. I've seen it on terrestrial TV somewhere. It's like the snowman. Every year you can guarantee it's going to be on Channel 4 since... It's first ever year. It is still on every Christmas Eve. Well, we've got to have our traditions, haven't we? Oh, yeah. And I watch it every single year. I usually forget that it's on or I'm working and can't watch it. Yeah, you can keep your father Christmas and that's Snowman and Snow Dog. We want the original, the snowman. We want walking in the air. We want to have our Christmas completely shat all over by this really depressing story of a snowman he makes mates with. And melts. (laughs) It's it's basically Frosty the Snowman where you put the hat on him and everything. It's that (laughs) British. So it's miserable. Because we're British, we won't even let a ginger have a friend for one day. No. (laughs) Before we melt him. (laughs) That's why, Mr. Weasley, we're giving you this pile of shite. Dumbledore gave it to... He was, he was Welsh in that film. I don't know why I'm suddenly Scottish. <laughs> You're singing into a lot of Scottish. The thing is, Bill's going to listen to that and go, he wasn't King Scottish, he was Welsh in that movie. Uh, Mr. Potter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting way off track. <laughs> oh, God. Do we have any more? No, that's it. That's everything. That's all I have. I don't care anymore. I want to go. I know we've got an interview to do, but my God. Uh, right, so yeah, they're your anniversaries for this week, and I think it's time to bring our guest in, and he's got a bit of Star Trek trivia for us as well. Well, over the decades, there's always those lost movies of our childhoods that leave an imprint on us, and for myself personally, there was this one movie we had on VHS that I think I must have worn this movie out considerably. And it was a 1986 sci-fi action movie called Eliminators. Now, this movie was not a huge blockbuster. Uh, In fact, I'm not even sure if it got a theatrical release over in the UK. But I know it had a a big-ass poster that I had on my wall until I was about 20 years old. And the movie kind of disappeared for decades and wasn't available. Until one night I caught it on the Sci-Fi Channel in the 2000s. And it's a, it's a Charles Band classic. Eliminators was a story of a female scientist, a river rat, a ninja, and a half-man, half-robot being called the Mandroid, who team up to battle the Mandroid's creator, who is a time-travelling madman scientist by the name of Abbott Reeves, who was played by Roy Detrice. All of the Eliminators went on to have successful careers, but I always kind of wondered what happened to uh, the Mandroid himself, because he was just awesome. Uh, the man behind the man machine is an actor by the name of Patrick Reynolds. And I always wondered about his career and all about the time spent on my favourite guilty pleasure movie of my youth. Now this year, I finally got to meet the man himself. 
and I couldn't wait to bring him onto this show to really discuss his acting career, his interesting life around acting uh, before and after, and all the way to his return to the screen today, decades later. So joining us today from California, Patrick Reynolds. Good morning, Patrick. Well, good morning, Andrew. I'm glad to be on board with you. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome, <laughs> darling. <laughs> well, well, Patrick, uh, for one, obviously it's a huge thrill for you to be here. Uh, I think we've discussed a lot of the movie Eliminators in the talks we've had kind of leading up to recording this show. And uh, naturally, we're, we're going to cover it all again. <laughs> but uh, getting to know you, there's been some real eye-opening things uh, that we're going to cover today. And some I've only just discovered while I was uh, writing up the show. And I really wanted to start here. For starters, uh, one fact I learned about you is that you're actually the son of an actress by the name Marianne O'Brien, which will be completely lost on Steve. But me being the huge golden age of cinema fan. I actually know her from the Delmar Dave's romance movie, The Very Thought of You, that was actually shot in Pasadena in 1944. No, I'm not that old. I just know the movie. Okay, fair enough. uh, Is it safe to say that you caught the artistic family gene from your mother? I think that's true. And, uh, you know, she was a great beauty. Oh, my God. The woman would stop traffic when she walked across the street. Hopefully I got some of her looks, too. But uh, anyway, uh, she was amazing. So later when she got to you know have a starring role in a Broadway play, a hit play called The Doe Girls, that got her a $500 a week contract with the Warner Brothers. And gosh, um, she got up to Hollywood and the studio wanted her to take acting lessons. And this is the moment of truth in her career because she said, I've been in a Broadway show. I don't need acting lessons. And I think that really, you know, was very self-destructive. It hurt her career. They sent her on a very, they punished her by sending her down to San Diego's with a couple of other uh, starlets that were assigned to meet uh, the troops. And on this boat, uh, she was introduced to my father. Now, my father was R.J. Reynolds. He was the son of the founder of Reynolds Tobacco. She got down to the Del Coronado Hotel and met my father, and I think it was love at first sight. They started writing, corresponding, and he was romantic, and you know they proposed marriage in the mail with these love letters, and she sent a, he sent her a few hundred dollars in cash to ask her to go get pictures taken and send him her pictures. So she went to Bruno of Hollywood and got these glamour shots taken, and he had them up uh, you know, next to his bunk on the, in the, on the ship where he was in the Navy on the Pacific Theater during the war. And he had a real girl that he was writing letters to, love letters to. And all the other guys had like Betty Grable. So that's how. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, the moment of truth was we all get self-destructive. And I think that even when we made Eliminators, you know, I, I had a big moment of opportunity and which is when I'm sitting with one of the most powerful agencies in Hollywood with all the top brass, and I had gone in for a meeting to propose uh, having them take me as a client to write a book about the R.J. Reynolds family. And I said to them, I want you to represent me and not your, and don't bring anybody else in. I just want you to look out for my interest. I didn't know how the business worked, even though I'd been in film school at USC and UCLA. 
I didn't know the business. And they said, excuse me, Mr. Reynolds, but this meeting is over. So I went back to my therapist and I told her what happened. She said to me, you're not ready to be successful. You are not ready for success. You uh, should have said, where do I sign? And I said, well, why is this? And she said, when you're a baby, your mother says, Patrick, don't piss in the bed. Patrick, oh, my darling baby child, my son. So the, the, the baby gets the idea of success and home and comfort and love with feeling like a failure. Failure is home for most of us. And the point here is that, that I found a way to self-destruct. So when William Morris Agency got interested in representing my book, uh, and they said, we want to sign you with one of our writers, and we'll have our TV, uh, the head of our TV people sell the book. I said, where do I sign? And I made a deal. And I did not self-destruct, and I haven't since. So you've touched on a few things that we're going to be looking at later, but uh, we have to start out on a note that you have mentioned, uh, which does run the risk of pulling a lot of the discussion up front on topics that we want to discuss later. Um, but as you said, your family was uh, the extremely wealthy tobacco company, R.J. Reynolds, which was founded by your grandfather. Obviously, we've got a lot of history that we're going to cover in regards to your family and everything that happened there a bit later on. But in the world of film, as you said, you went over to the University of California and to USC. Now, was filmmaking a passion for you or did you feel like it was the the natural kind of family direction because of your family's history in the business? No, I was uh, in middle school, like seventh grade. And, you know, I had a talent for performing and acting and I don't know, singing, whatever. So at that particular private middle school in Connecticut, they produced uh, Gilbert and Sullivan operettas every year. So even though I wasn't a senior in eighth grade, uh, which means I was about 12 or 13, uh, in seventh grade, the year before, they said, Patrick, we want you to, to perform the role of Coco in the Mikado. And I did. And uh, <laughs> I brought the house down. It was great fun. It was an egotistical, self-involved, narcissistic, you know, Lord High Executioner. And I said, I sang, uh, I've got a little list. I've got a little list of society's offenders who might well be underground. I've got a little list. So that's a great song from the Mikado. And you know, next year they cast me as Sir Joseph in Pinafore. There I'm singing, um, I am the monarch of the seas, the ruler of the Queen's Navy, whose praise Great Britain loudly chants, and so do my sisters and my cousins and my aunts, and so do my sisters and my cousins and my aunts, <laughs> my sisters and my cousins whom I reckon up by dozens, and my <laughs> Oh, God, I hope this doesn't end up giving us a copyright strike. <laughs> I don't know what that's worth, but the point is, that's what started me acting. And when I got to college in Berkeley in, would you believe, 1967, the heart of the hippie movement, was, you know, I'm mean, there I am getting off the train because I was afraid to fly for whatever reason. And, and, I, within a few months, was growing my hair long and smoking pot and becoming a hippie. 
and uh, my brother had given me an Aeroflex camera. And in those days, an Aeroflex, it was a $3,000 16-millimeter movie camera. And I had a teacher at Berkeley, an African-American uh, man, very erudite, educated. He was had a, you know, studied at Oxford, had a PhD, uh, and he was a film critic, and he directed the San Francisco Film Festival. So Albert, Albert Johnson, who was a beloved professor at the school, um, became my mentor. And I traveled in Europe with him, and uh, it was quite an adventure knowing the man. He said, Patrick, why don't you make a documentary of Berkeley? So in 1969, I went out with my Aeroflex, and I made a documentary of People's Park and the building of the, the park and Berkeley before all the riots and all the... So I had all of that in my film. Anyway, bottom line, I became a filmmaker, and that's why I wanted to go down to film school, because my brother, the short answer to this would have been, my brother gave me a fancy camera, and I made a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, here we are. Exactly, and in 1975, I believe it was, you kind of ventured into your first... Uh, real acting gig after uh, visiting your actress girlfriend on set. And you can tell us about this because it was an impressive start for a first gig. Well, it was. I mean, one night uh, with all my shoulder-length long hair and you know, it looked like I stepped out of a, a Botticelli painting at that time. And I was very <laughs> muscular and buff. I'd been working out bodybuilding with you know Arnold and his friends down at uh, Gold's Gym. And... I walked into this club and there was this you know, girl and I just started talking with her and I didn't know who she was. And we started dating and it turned out she was a rising actress in the, the, the stable of Robert Altman, the director. She was Shelley Duvall, who later starred in The Shining and Popeye. And Shelley and I just fell in love and I had this wonderful five bedroom mansion up in the Hollywood Hills, right under the Hollywood sign. It had a paper moon that lit up at night on a 20-foot pole above the swimming pool. And it had a guest house and a view of beautiful Lake Hollywood below. You felt like you are in the country. We had two Great Danes, five guinea pigs, uh, two ducks, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. No, there were three ducks. And um, guinea pigs, and I don't remember what else. Shelley loved animals, and she loved fairy tales. And we were just happy, and we got invited to the homes of, I don't know, Julie Christie, and uh, I don't know, uh, Jack Nicholson had us over a lot and for parties, and there Arnold would be. And I thought, he'll never make it as an actor. He's too big. But I knew him from <laughs> Golds. <laughs> I was wrong. Oh, anyway, very wrong. But it was just a crazy time. And Shelley said, look, I'm making this movie Nashville. I'm going to be gone for three months. Um, cause Altman liked ensemble productions where everybody became like a family and they all stayed on the location and they just improvised some of the dialogue. I mean, Altman was a genius. Shelley, I, you know, I said, Shelley, no, I'm not coming to Nashville. I, I really, I'm not going to fit in. It's going to be a bunch of important movie stars. You have your work, go do your work. And she kept calling me every day. Please come and visit me. Oh, please. So finally, I, you know, I love the woman and I just said, okay, I'm coming. I was like 25 years old. And she goes all around the set saying, my boyfriend's coming to Nashville. He's coming. He doesn't think he's going to fit in. And so be real nice to him, okay? 
So when I get there, Patrick, darling, how are you? Welcome. There's Julie Christie in front of me saying this and Jeff Goldblum and, uh, you know, I don't know, all the people, Lily Tomlin, all the people in the movie. And uh, we went, Shelly and Julie were buddies. And so we went in Julie's trailer and just the three of us. And Julie pops her top off and she's walking around topless in front of me. Jesus. My <laughs> eyes were like popping out of my head. I thought, that's Julie Christie. Her tits are hanging out. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> and and I, you know, but we, I just played it cool. And, you know, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's a memory, you know, the. Anyway, Altman said, because uh, I was going to b- go back home to L.A., Altman said, well, Patrick, do you want to be in the movie? And I said, ah, you know, sure. I mean, you want me in front of the camera? I'm really kind of a behind-the-camera guy. And again, I didn't like Altman's movies because everybody uh, in the movie were flawed or victimized by their environment. And these are not the kind of heroic figures that Anne Rand would uh, advocate for, like Howard Rock and in The Fountainhead. So, uh, but I've since had such a deep appreciation of Robert Altman's work. And he was right. People are victimized and they are, you know, either either innately weak or corrupt. And, you know, there's a lot of flaws that people have. I've seen it in my friends and in myself. So I've come around to really have an appreciation of Altman's work. At the time, I did not. But I'd stuck around. Altman put me in the movie. It was like glorified extra work. I was sitting on the stage in the grand old Capri sequence with long hair. And that was the extent of my role. But the, the movie made the cover of Time magazine. You know, Shelley uh, invited me to, to audition for another movie she was in called Bernice Bob's Her Hair, which is a wonderful F. Scott Fitzgerald short story produced for public television. And it's a jewel of the film. It's on DVD, Bernice Bob's Her Hair. And it had all our, our little clique of friends from L.A., Dennis Christopher, Gary Springer, um, and uh, Veronica Cartwright. And we were all hanging out back in L.A. And uh, I played Draycott Deo. Even though I was a big, muscle-bound, hunky guy, they put me in a dark suit <clears throat> and made me a shy suitor, uh, the son of a minister, who said lines like, well, uh, you mean there's a dance at the country club? Well, in my opinion, some of our generation are going to end up dancing themselves to death. <laughs> Shelley goes, oh, no. And I said, oh, yes. So I was a real prude. And and that role got me more roles. So in the Tony Randall show, I was a bald guy. I got the part when I auditioned for Tony Randall uh, to take his – the character was, was named Bullethead – and uh, he liked to go bowling. So I went in and I said, I'm going to read this character in a funny voice. And to this day, I've got a gift with doing voices. And I said, uh, I read the lines like this. Hi, my name is Bullethead, and I like to go bowling. Bowling's fun. It's fun for the entire family. And I gave him a little New York accent. And, and I got the part. And Tony Randall said, does that guy really talk like that? And I said, <laughs> I said, no, I don't. I don't, Mr. Randall. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a hell of an impressive way to kick off your career, basically. Well, I just want to, I want to add, if I can, I want to add one tiny thing, which is that I took this to heart. I believe in, you know, people that succeed get help. 
I enrolled with Lee Strasberg in his master class, studied with him personally, and he said, Patrick, you have a quality. <laughs> he said, I want you to improvise Biff and Death of a Salesman. So I studied with Lee Strasberg, Peggy Fury, Charles Conrad, whose method was totally different, fantastic method of teaching, and we all know the method, so I'm not going to get into that. But Charles Conrad said, look, you memorize the dialogue with no choices. Hello, hello, how are you? Fine. And in the moment, you look at the scene partner, you're the girl across from you, there's always boy, girl, uh, very bland dialogue that could be interpreted any way. The, and it, what she, the only rule was get your attention off yourself. Forget about yourself. Just look at the other person and react. That's all. And so the dialogue, if the, if the girl said, and, and the other rule was do not do the cliche, be interesting. So I would look at the girl and if, if she said to me, hostile, hello, I would go, hello. Well, how are you? I'm fine. Are you new in town? Uh, yeah, we just got here the other day. I mean, you would you would follow, you know, the reaction to the other person and, yeah. and do something interesting. So anyway, in acting, you take from this teacher, you take from that teacher. And even though every teacher says my way or the highway, you have to take a little bit from this one and a little from that one. And you put it together and that becomes your, your craft and your technique. That's very good advice for any actor, which is supposed to prove that you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. And speaking of which, you didn't, because around about this time, you were also gaining quite a good reputation as a dancer. You were getting roles in the videos uh, for Xanadu and in Hair. And uh, what the ladies want to know, Patrick Swayze, were you and Patrick rival dancers on the floor? <laughs> oh, that's funny. No, Patrick was a dancer. I don't think I was. That's, you know, way over the top in my case. Patrick, however, was in my acting class. We had a class of about 14 actors. Patrick Swayze and Michelle Pfeiffer were in my class uh, when I studied with Bill Sorrells under Milt Kitsellis' uh, workshop in Hollywood. And um, he were, we were friends. You know, he, he's the dancer, not me. I got a bit part pushing a coat rack in and Xanadu, <laughs> and that led to a music video for Olivia Newton-John's physical, like uh, just, you know, basically on an exercise bicycle. So I, I wouldn't call myself <laughs> a dancer, rather. But I, 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 I like dancing, and I'm, I'm improv. I'm good with improv, but uh, good. remembering the choreography is a, a problem. Patrick could do it. He was trained from childhood by his mother. That's something that I can do. I cannot dance for the life of me. Oh, but okay. Can we cover the fact that some people say you were one of the Harry Krishnas in the airplane? Was that true? Well, look, I can't. I can't stop you from covering that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was an audition I went on. I had long, long hair, but they remembered me as the bald guy in Tony Randall. So you know how they cast in Hollywood, crazy stuff. Uh, oh, there's a bald guy, like Harry Christian. Get Patrick Reynolds for that. And uh, I, <laughs> I went in the audition, and uh, I did not want to cut my hair because this was like a – it wasn't like skullcap makeup every day. They were on a budget, and uh, they wanted the actors who did the Harry Christian roles uh, to cut their hair. I had money, I had hair, and I, I like – you know, I didn't need this role – 
Looking back, it was a mistake. I should have let them shave my head and done the part. So instead, they put me basically in a tiny moment at the airport uh, as the character is uh, rushing through the airport and you know getting on the plane in the beginning. And that's that was my part. I took a punch, but I couldn't even take the punch. So they had some stuntman stand in, and I'm like a little extra in the background of this pretty guy with long hair and a Harry Christian and a flower. I mean, you could if you blinked, you'd miss me in an airplane. But it's on my resume, and I get uh, residuals. Well, that's awesome. I wonder if <laughs> David, wonder if David Zucker remembers. We're going to have to ask David when he comes back on. But, uh... he, he will. He will remember that. I'm sure Reynolds couldn't take the punch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I should have. I should have done the Harry Christian role, I swear to God. <laughs> well, now we're going to get to the real uh, meat and potatoes section as we delve into Eliminators. Now, you had kind of taken a break from acting at this point. You were working, I believe, for an international bus company prior to returning with this role. Is that correct? Uh, I was, re- yes, a bus company. Good God. Uh, gosh. When I broke up with Shelley Duvall, I bought this gigantic house. Uh, 12,000 square feet. It was a major estate. And I, you know, became friends with the children of, uh, well, a particular billionaire, uh, Adnan Khashoggi, who uh, was an arms dealer and quite notorious. But the sons didn't know anything about that. And I became a buddy of theirs. So, but I've been partying around with the jet set and uh, because of Muhammad, who got me into all that, and it was a little window into my father's life, so I was quite enjoying myself. And <laughs> even though I didn't have the kind of money that a Reynolds, you know, might be given, um, I think just talking to me and listening to me, you can tell that I was not that spoiled as a kid, and um, you know, came out of the inheritance part of it okay. But so, and I, and when I became an actor, I had to prove myself and get out there because no family help is going to help you when the cameras are rolling. I, my, I got married to my first wife in 1983. So at the wedding, uh, you know, Dodi Fayed, who later, uh, uh, he was a good friend of a good friend of mine who was the best man, Mohammed Khashoggi. And uh, they were cousins. And Dodi piloted a helicopter in those days and arrived at my wedding with Mohammed. And along the way, they picked up Robin Williams, and uh, landed, who was making a movie in Germany. And of course, you know, all these jets I showed, Robin gave a speech at the wedding that got everybody in stitches. And my aunt had a blonde bouffant hairdo. He insulted all the Germans, but without offending anybody, everybody was laughing and carrying on. And he said, Patrick's aunt looks like an omelet. Well, that, that was Robin's gift. And my wife, my first wife, her father, owned a bus company. It was uh, a big bus company with five or 600 buses. And uh, and that summer, there were bombs going off all over Europe. And all the tourists stopped coming to Europe. They canceled their vacations. So my father-in-law, who owned the bus company, had this gigantic uh, problem on his hands. He, had, he knew he'd have to pay the nut on all the buses through the winter. But this year, there was no money coming in. And he began borrowing on the same collateral twice and three times, same serial numbers, same buses. He got caught. He fled to Mexico and lost everything and had to hide out in Mexico with whatever he could escape with. My first wife and I, you know, had to go deal with that. 
So that was a little thing that was going on while we were making eliminators and the bus company went under and it was a multi-generational family business with 600 tour buses and very sad. Why would you ask about a bus company? Anyway, go on. <laughs> anyway. Well, we're just trying, to, just trying to get some flavor to everything. Well, um, you got the flavor. That is what happened. I don't think I've ever said that in an interview before. But, you know. <laughs> oh, Andy does his research. Um, well, in the movie, uh, you played the Mandroid. It's a robot made by a mad scientist with the aim of traveling back in time. Uh, <laughs> you sound like him. Sorry, I just, I had to do it like that. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> you did it to the time of the Roman Empire, I like Yes, that. to the time of the Roman Empire. So that an evil scientist can go back in time and become the new Caesar. Now, how were you even approached for this project? And what were your initial thoughts after reading it in the script? Well, I had gone to work for my father-in-law. And I toured European capitals with him, went, visited bus factories, and he was busy building up his credit with the banks, going around with the grandson of R.J. Reynolds, and that's how they do it in Germany. So I got very involved, and I had begun writing the book uh, that I had finally made a, a publishing deal for, The Gilded Leaf, about the R.J. Reynolds family. So my agent called and said, do you want to go on one more audition? I know you're not acting anymore. You're in the bus business. And I said, sure. What's the part? She said, well, these people, it's a lead role in the feature, and they want you to play a robot. I said, excuse me, are they going to be able to see my face? And she said, well, well, they're going to see three quarters of your face, but your upper right eye and that quarter of your head is going to be metal. And you play a character called Mendroid. And I said, sure, I'll go on the audition. So for once in my life, not caring about uh, you know, whether I got the part or not, I was relaxed. I said, I'd like to do the role. I'm, I'd be good in it. Um, let me know. And that afternoon, the phone rang, and they cast me in the role. And the lesson for me was, <laughs> looking back on previous auditions, I was too uptight and nervous and didn't have the self-esteem uh, needed to put myself over in an audition. Hey, well, the Mandroid costume, I mean, it was pretty impressive for its time, you know, including the scene where you remove your legs in order to attach yourself to a tank. Yeah, that really happens in the movie. Uh, I, I showed this movie to a friend of mine, not Steve. He actually watched it last night. I did, actually. You did, and uh, so I showed a friend. I'm sorry. School. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was I was watching it. I was looking at it, going, "This is insane and brilliant in equal measure." <laughs> That's, that was pretty much the reviews that it got. Yeah, well, I showed this film to a friend of mine in film school. As soon as he saw you come out attached to that tank, he just said, "This is." Awesome. <laughs> However, that that thing was not exactly easy to drive, was it? Well, uh, it wasn't me driving it. It was a little Spanish guy who was about four feet two, and <laughs> he was inside. And one night, you know, as the tank goes over the wall and goes off into the darkness, in the shot, they kept running in the tank, and, and it was pitch black. And I was saw a, a truck with the back open. We're approaching it. And I, I knew that if we hit that truck, that my body would have been severed in half. And I said to him, stop, stop. <laughs> and the guy didn't stop, but he kept going, you know, and he couldn't see through the slits. It was pitch dark. I said, stop. And finally he stopped. Otherwise I would have been dead. <laughs> this is low budget filmmaking. We had fun though. And 
it was it was uh, the shoot was it was hot. They had to hold an umbrella over me in the hot sun in Spain uh, in July and August. But you know, we got the movie done, and I hit my marks. I knew my lines. I was professional, and uh, got good reviews in my performance. So, but it, it was not an easy shoot to make. Uh, there was a little bit of distrust on the set. Uh, it wasn't. I would call not call it a, the happiest set ever. And um, but in movies, even if you have a happy set and everyone's self congratulating I can see it when I watch movies. If people are congratulating each other. And I know that's a happy set, but this is a terrible movie. So sometimes unhappy sets give good movies. The movie uh, like featured some pretty notable names in early roles, such as Denise Crosby, um, who later went on to be in Star Trek Next Generation, uh, Andrew Prine from V, and future Tiger on the Beat star Conan Lee as the Eliminator team. Now, it sounds like this was was the issues working with the rest of this talent, or was the issues working with the rest of the production? Uh, I think, you know, it was a combination of things. It was Peter Manoogian's first movie, and he's a wonderful director. Uh, whether he believed in me, I'm not sure, because I had this shadow over my head, grandson of R.J. Reynolds. And, you know, but in the end, uh, he did a really good job. I, you know, I liked working with him, and uh, it was also about believing in myself and other people uh, believing in themselves. Uh, one actor wants to be more the star, and Peter said, no, you're an ensemble. It wasn't me, by the way. Um, so we were all, you know, there was some competition on the set, a little distress. It's fine. It is what it is. And um, we made a decent movie in the end. And I would do it again, you know, even though I fell off the back of the boat in a robot suit and sank <laughs> to the bottom of the lake. <laughs> Luckily, they had a, a cord attached to me and they hauled me up before I could drown. <laughs> you know, these kind of Jesus. things happen. And it was low-budget filmmaking, but, you know, it, it, it was fun, thrilling, a, a nightmare, uh, scary. Uh, I mean, all the above rolled into one. Well, word is, uh, apparently, um, Tim Thomason and Don the Dragon Wilson were original casting for Harry Fontana and Coogee. Uh Have you ever heard of this, or do you know why they didn't end up being in the cast? Because they were kind of regulars on the Charles Band circuit. I do not know. I did not know that. I think that they decided this was going to be the production of The Heirs. Here we have The Heir to Reynolds Tobacco. We've got Denise Crosby, who's an heir to Bing Crosby, her father. And that I think, and Peter Minugian was a first-time director. So this was the first-time group that they decided to try that. I think it was a good call. Uh, Peter made a damn good movie. His father was Haig Minugian of the New York uh, Film School. And he had uh, quite a, a history preceding him in the business. So I, I think that they were just trying something different. This production happened mainly in Spain. And uh, what were some of the, the better memories of filming in that country in the mid-80s? Oh, my gosh. I'm trying to remember the name of that band that was out. Um, oh, God. Oh, well, there was a record out by a new band that we all listened to. And, I mean, I remember the humor. Uh, Mac Alberg, the cinematographer, I think he passed away, sadly, but he was a great cinematographer and he knew lighting and he made the most coolest lighting. Uh, as you watch the movie, it's so well lit. Um, Peter was wonderful, not only with the actors, but with the storyboarding. 
I don't think anybody worked harder on eliminators than Mac and Peter. And I have, I really honor them for those long hours at the beginning of the movie. Peter was a handsome young man uh, in his late thirties, maybe. And uh, by the end of the movie, he looked old and haggard. <laughs> it's just <laughs> what making uh, this kind of movie, um, planning the storyboard and the next day's shoot late at night up into the night. I mean, we actors, we got to go home, uh, you know, by dark or whatever. And, and maybe it was a two hour ride back to the hotel from the country, but we, you know, we had it easy compared to Peter and Max. So that's a happy memory for me. Uh, the lunches were an hour and a half. They required that in Europe, I think on mm -hmm. the set, that was always kind of fun. Um, <laughs> I, I hung pretty close with the hair and makeup people and, uh, sometimes the other actors, whatever. Um, oh, I remember one night we all went out to a discotheque. <laughs> in Madrid. And uh, it was one of the few nights where we all did something together. And I asked this girl to dance and she was really hot. And I was dancing with her up a storm. And then the, I noticed that the, the members of the, the film, the crew and everybody were laughing. And I thought, why are they laughing? So when I came back, they were all laughing and tittering. And finally, somebody blurted out, Patrick, did you know you were dancing with a man? <laughs> I said, no. I said, what? that was a man? I said, that was a man. <laughs> so that was it's a happy, crazy moment. Anyway. Need some better lighting in that nightclub. <laughs> well, it, was dark. it was very dark and loud. <laughs> well, in speaking of hanging out with the hair and makeup people, I mean, was it incredibly hot in that suit? And how long did it take you to hook up every day? It was blisteringly hot. And I, I remember they would uh, take my robot arm off of me. And then they would pour about a pint of sweat out of the arm, you know, onto the ground. And I, they would hold an umbrella over my head sometimes. And sometimes we would get the, um, the master shot, you know, so we had that I was in the full costume. And then uh, they would go in for the two shot or the close up. And I would say to Peter Manugian, the director, I said, Peter, can I take off my legs, please? Oh, please. But no, they might show up in the in the in the two shot, and so you know. But typically, he then he would get human, and he would say, "Nah, you can take them off." So Mac Alberg knew to come in a little closer, so they didn't show that I didn't have my legs on. But then I would go in the trailer and lay next to the air conditioner, uh, like on the floor, right up to where the cold air was coming, and <laughs> try and blow it into my <laughs> costume so I could cool down you know there was no this was a low budget filmmaking there was no air conditioning to hook up to my robot suit and well this movie also had since that we're talking about the cast and everything this movie also had one of the all-time greats peter shrum who appeared in most of charles band's movies such as trancers and arena and i think most people will probably recognize him as the shotgun wielding bar owner from terminator 2 now was he a fun guy to hang out with uh, oh, of course. I didn't have as much contact with him because he was not always in scenes that I was in, uh, the escape from the compound in the beginning. and But he was wonderful. It was really amazing casting. They found, you know, exactly the right people for each role, I, I thought. Well, it seemed like um, this could have been a franchise player for Charles Band. And you're the only eliminator to get killed off, unless you kind of count that little spot robot. <laughs> the little math robot. 
<laughs> I'm sure I had something. I'm sure I had something resembling that exact design, just not in camouflage as a kid. But was that? <laughs> sure, it's like the attack track of its day. That was that was the worst special effects I've ever seen. That spot <laughs> it was so hokey and badly done. But you know that was what they were able to do. So. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was a classic fishing rod line that was just swinging it around. Yeah. In acting school, that like when Spot lands on my shoulder and I look around, I'm very convincing. I'm looking at this, I believe, thrower. <laughs> but but that tra they trained us that way. You know, if you're in a reading, you just imagine the character that if the person you're reading with can't read, like in a casting uh, director office, you you just pretend that they can read and you react accordingly. <laughs> yeah. Well, was there talk of of this becoming a franchise? Were there any plans for a sequel with a kind of reassembled Mandroid? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the movie made its money back. It did modestly well. I don't think it made a fortune for Empire. And that's probably why they didn't do a sequel. They forewalled the production. They, they opened it in, I think... A thousand or twelve hundred movie theaters that they were paying the theater chains to have the movie there, and then they would get all the receipts from the box office. So it's called forewalling, and that's how they released it. They did it themselves. They did their own advertising. So from uh, start to finish, it was a self-distributed movie by Empire. Apparently, you've been aware of the growing cult nature and the following that this movie has, especially from eighties kids that are now growing up. Uh, have there been any interesting fanboy approaches in regards to this? Well, I mean, I've had a couple of emails uh, from people uh, who said, you know, I saw this movie as a 12-year-old, and it made such an impression on me. You were such a hero to me. And I, I just love this movie. And, you know, uh, so many men have been fatherless or without a good role model uh, as a, a, a boy, that I some, something rang in the eliminators. And maybe it was the pathos or the ethos that I had been abandoned by my father. And uh, that wasn't in the movie, but somehow through the behavior of the man I was in the film, people could see that. And maybe they resonated with it. And maybe that's why some kids really resonated with the mandroid. And I do get mail about that, even to this day, once in a while. Well, in a movie, you worked alongside Denise Crosby, uh, who obviously went on to become Tasha Yar in Star Trek The Next Generation. And there is the, the rumour out there that you were originally the choice for Captain Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek The Next Generation that went to Patrick Stewart. So we can finally clarify, is this true? And if so, what's the story around it? <laughs> well, it, it is true. And they kept calling me back for the part of Captain Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek Next Generation. And I kept going back. And of course, you know, that's the heartbreak of Hollywood and being in the business. You know, you know, well, how many other people are still competing? Well, we're down to three actors. And Patrick, you're one of them. You know, in film school, they taught me the first thing you do is you cast to ability. Patrick Stewart had a history and a great resume doing Shakespeare. I didn't have that. You know, I had studied with all the best teachers, but I had not done professional performances of Shakespeare like uh, Patrick Stewart had. So the role went to him. It's correct casting. Uh, if I was on the other side of the table as a producer, I would probably uh, have picked Patrick Stewart too. 
So my whole life would have changed if they took a chance on me. And sometimes they do in Hollywood, but this time they did not. And it was heart, it was heartbreaking. I mean, because there I am on the verge of either major stardom or a major boost in my career. Uh, I knew how to not be self-destructive by then, and I was ready for it. Um, but it uh, broke my heart. And I remember, you know, crying in the middle of the night in my big mansion that I was living in in, in Bel Air where movie stars would come to my parties. And I mean, I had a, I had a good life, but I was banging the walls, crying alone at night in this big house saying, what happened to my acting career? Why isn't it going better? And I went to see my therapist and uh, told her and I expected sympathy. And she looked at me and she said, you want to be an actor? She said, work harder, move your ass. <laughs> She said, you get up at 10 in the morning, you give parties, you hang out with movie stars, you go to, you know, uh, you know, fancy places and vacation. She said, work harder. And I said, screw you. She trained me to do that. She trained me to express my anger. And I said, <laughs> you know what? You. And, and, I, and But guess what? She just leaned back in her chair and watched me. And, you know, after, I was never depressed after that. I went, I started realizing I left angry, but the next day I realized she's right. I got to work harder. I started working harder. I stopped feeling sorry for myself. And, but the, the business has highs and lows. And I'm not even telling you the stars that I would see in her group therapy. Uh, there were people that were major stars. So the bottom line is uh, the business can be heartbreaking. And there's, it's a roller coaster of highs and lows. Almost getting Star Trek Next Generation was a major low and a blow when I didn't get it. And I, I recovered, but uh, only with therapy. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. Your therapist sounds like my ex-wife. <laughs> she was a genius. I mean, Irene, she wrote books like uh, uh, Go For It, Nice Girls Do. I mean, she was an author. She The woman was a genius. She taught me all my Yiddish. And uh, she... Uh, just really helped me out. One time I came in depressed about my acting career and I, and I said, you know, Irene, and I think, you know, maybe she knew I wasn't serious, but I said it out loud. I said, you know, Irene, so depressed. You know, I even thought, of, I even, I even thought of suicide. So she, she uh, looks at me and she said, that's a fair choice. <laughs> and she, I, said, I said, what do you mean? It's a fair choice. Through you. And it was a <laughs> oh my god! And so I was so angry, and I, I, I were, it was like nineteen, you know, eighty something, whatever. And um, this was before Eliminators, and uh, I stayed the hour because I wanted my hundred and fifty dollars worth. But uh, I really, she was the world would go on without me. And again, after that day, that was the last time I've ever been depressed. I've had once in a while a little anxiety about this or that, speaking in front of the audience of 3,000 about tobacco. But, you know, I have never been depressed since that day. That's a fair choice. Well, speaking about your uh, work as the, the anti-smoking activist, you started to wind down your actors your acting career for a pursuit in activism. And this started by testifying to a congressional subcommittee against your family's legacy in the tobacco industry. Now, this was a dramatic shift in a career focus. So what was the story behind it? What 
made you want to do this? Well, you know, Eliminators had come out in 1,200 theaters, give or take, and it, and it came and went, and we did not become stars. I did not get the part as Captain Picard, and I never liked uh, the tobacco industry, even though I, you know, but I never worked in it either, and I never had any real connection to it, hardly even knew my father, so, and he never worked in it, so... There I am, and it, I had remarked to somebody that I didn't, I thought tobacco taxes were so low because in Europe, and I was a smoker, by the way, <laughs> so I would pay a lot more in Europe than I would in the U.S., and I thought, how come they're so low in this country? I did not know that uh, politicians were taking huge campaign contributions from big tobacco to keep tobacco taxes low, but I gradually learned all of that, and 80% of them, by the way, went to Republicans, conservatives. So, and they were bidding, but Democrats and tobacco states were voting with them too. So bottom line, somebody said, you know, Patrick Reynolds is a member of the Reynolds family. He's anti-smoking. So they invited me to testify before a congressional hearing. Now, I mean, I'll be honest. I enjoyed the limelight. I enjoyed, uh, you know, being a center stage for a moment. Um, I think it's partly why people become actors or get in the business and, I had lost my father to smoking and not having a father in my life was one of the worst possible crosses that, you know, I had to bear in my life. So when the opportunity came to speak out against the product that killed my father, I took it and I went to Washington. I had been on a tour of the Capitol with a friend who invited me, but I just kept my mouth shut and listened. And when, and then out of that, it got around Washington when I cut, I said, tobacco taxes should be higher. Um, They said, well, you know, why don't we invite Patrick Reynolds to testify before the hearing chaired by uh, Henry Waxman, the wonderful Democratic congressman who wanted to look into banning tobacco advertising. And that uh, led to my speaking out publicly and the headlines that came out of that. Tobacco industry uh, grandson says no to big tobacco and so on. I didn't realize that the kind of spotlight that I would be cast in. And as I got besieged with requests for speaking engagements and uh, stand up in front of an audience, which I had a terror of because I had always had scripted lines to say, I, uh, you know, began working on smoking bans, partial smoking bans in restaurants, then 100% bans, then uh, testified in Congress to get smoking off planes. So the more every time I worked on a political campaign, they got media trainers to train me and answering all the questions. So I learned the answers. Uh, I became more and more committed to the cause as I saw what the other side was doing, what Big Tobacco was doing with cartoon characters in their advertising, targeting children by their own admission and their internal documents. So yeah, I was very much converted over to be anti-tobacco. And I took up the flag and waved that flag at dozens of press conferences uh, and began speaking at colleges in order to make a living because I needed to earn money to live. And also, uh, I did a lot of pro bono free talks for, uh, for nonprofits. So anyway, that's a little bit of what happened there. Well, in 1989, uh, you published the powerful novel, The Gilded Leaf, which is a chronicle of three generations of your family and the tobacco business run by them. Now, at this point in time, you're currently sourcing a production 
company or streaming outfit to make this into a powerful series. So give us your elevator pitch, Patrick. Tell us about the book and its prospects. Well, if we had more time, I'd go into the history of how I came to write that book. But I will just say I didn't know my father very well, and and that was part of it, uh, to get to know him. And the Reynolds family story is so colorful, so powerful. Uh, It captures the zeitgeist of every decade uh, of American and European life. Uh, from the Roaring Twenties to the Depression in the Thirties to the Forties with my mother in Hollywood and so on. But one thing I've noticed is that every great successful TV series does have, they have two things in common. They focus on a small central group of characters and it's over a very limited span of time. So you can't do 150 years and have a successful TV series, in my view. Uh, I didn't go to film school for nothing. <laughs> to a lot of film festivals <laughs> around the world. You know, you, you really need to pick and choose what era to cover. So my, my vote uh, going in would be cover 1918 to 1932. 1918, the patriarch who founded the tobacco company dies. And there is my father, 12 years old, uh, and his younger brother and his two younger sisters, going to inherit $28 million each in the middle of what would be the Depression. So by the 1920s, my father is a teenager. He is financing Broadway shows. He's, that's the period I want to cover. And he's a rollicking, uh, you know, a socialite guy from the South. Uh, and, but he is very um, connected socially. He was hanging out with Elsa Maxwell, and he was R.J. Reynolds. He was a major name. He had a yellow Rolls Royce. He drove it into the ocean and the car was found and the tabloids screamed, missing tobacco air. And he just, you know, he was found at a chop suey parlor in St. Louis. And he told the reporter, I just wanted to get away from the fast lane where money talks. His younger brother, Smith, um, was down in Winston-Salem and he was uh, (laughs) getting it on with uh, a local heiress. And Cannon, from the Cannon Linens family, and uh, old man Cannon, her father, walked in on them. And <laughs> he got, went back home and got a shotgun and came down and said, you, you, boy, you two are going down to the justice of the peace and you're getting married now. <laughs> so local, local, wags called it a, local wags called it a cannon, not a shotgun wedding. And they got married. But she, she was pregnant, and before the baby was born, they were already in the divorce court. They were two spoiled brats. Um, and he, he calls my father and he says, uh, brother, I'm bored down here in North Carolina. And, and my father said, well, come up to New York. They go to a show and they go to a show starring Libby Holman. Libby Holman was a famous, sultry, bisexual torch singer. And, you know, Smith had never been to a Broadway show. And he turned to my father and he said, that's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. <laughs> he was a little bit of a hayseed, I guess. And, and uh, so they go backstage. Smith is, you know, at 18 years old, 19, smitten. And he wanted to take Libby to dinner and take her out. And she wouldn't have anything to do with him. Well, at one point, she, he keeps courting her and, she, you know, following her around and whatever. And he, she's on the beach at the Hamptons with uh, B. Lily and her friends. Smith's plane turns upside down. And 
thousands of rose petals flutter out and land on the picnic party at the beach. Well, that would be enough to turn any woman's head. She, he wanted to be the first pilot to na- circumnavigate the globe. And uh, he had a plane and, you know, got a, I forget the name of the plane. It's in my book. But uh, the Gilded Leaf. <laughs> Available uh, now. She, she met him in Hong Kong. <laughs> Right. So, but anyway, they, they became engaged. They, they got married. Um, and now they're married and the, the Smith is bored again. And she's got her gay Hollywood friends. She was bisexual. So she's got her gay buddies, male and female, down visiting her at this big estate in North Carolina, which she is now the mistress of. Uh, and Smith gets bored and drunk and didn't like the crowd. And he was shooting with his little pistol in the living room out the crystals of the chandelier. <laughs> and one night, uh, Smith and Libby were out on the sleeping porch and they had a fight. And the guest was still filled with uh, the Hollywood crowd, you know. And she came out on the balcony covered in blood and she said, oh my God, Smith has been shot. Are we and heading into spoiler territory here? Some people might not want to read all. this. No, it's a famous story. <laughs> a lot of people know the story. But... But I'll, I'll wrap it up. But bottom line, uh, he died. She was indicted for murder. It was a major tabloid story. And all of this is the stuff of good television. And uh, oh, yeah. it, if you've got likable characters and a, a good story and a good, I think you've got a big winner here in terms of a television uh, series. And it's a true story. That's the thing. It's so the characters lived their lives like they were in, going to be on a, in a TV show or a novel. They always made the dramatic choice. Don't ask me why. I think they just like drama. But uh, it, it does make good, good uh, uh, storytelling and good television. So, But anyway, Libby, Libby was indicted, and then in the trial, she announces she's pregnant. And But um, anyway, it's just a rich American story. And uh, it moves on into the in the 40s. My father meets my mother in Hollywood, and uh, they had a passionate, romance and uh i guess i came out of that and along with my brother mike but uh all that's another story for another day and it is all available in the book as well is it on amazon oh uh it's on amazon sure the gilded leaf Uh, i like the first edition it's got better paper and i like the pictures in it a little better they're almost the same but um the first edition can be had at uh better world books or alibris.com. Amazon, you don't, the first editions are pretty well gone out of Amazon. But if you get the current edition, it's fine. And uh, it's just not as pretty as the first edition, which I like better. But I'll get a royalty if you buy the current edition. Well, there we go. That's, it's all about the Benjamins. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tom Shackman and I, my co author, he and I are great friends. And he's continued to have a brilliant career. I mean, the Washington Post, the New York Times, all those major uh, book reviews raved about about the Gilded Leaf. So I'm, I'm, that's and I attribute that to Tom, I guess, and my family. <laughs> well, today you're considered one of America's most influential advocates of a smoke-free America, and you were presented with the President's Lifetime Achievement Award by Mr. Barack Obama himself in 2015. Now, was this one of the highest honors of your life? Because I can't honestly think of anything being bigger. 
No, it's, it is the highest honor of my life. Of course, getting an Oscar would have been maybe a little higher. <laughs> but not, no, you don't get higher than Barack Obama uh, giving you a Lifetime Achievement Award. So I was thrilled about that. Thank you for mentioning it. But very humbling, too. Well, away from the tobacco fight, uh, you're also involved in seasonal efforts around Christmas time with org. Now, this is something that's very special to you. So this is your chance. Let everybody know all about it. Well, one year I was, uh, a friend of mine said, he was really a friend of a friend. He said, why don't you come with me? I'm going to deliver gifts to needy children on Christmas Eve. I said, sure, I'll help you out. I'll go with you. Why not? And we went house to house. And the little smiles and the little children, uh, as we delivered the gifts when they were home, um, and when they weren't, we came back later, uh, were made such an impression on me. And I thought, I never knew this. The U.S. Post Office is giving away letters to Santa Claus uh, from kids who are asking for a warm blanket or new shoes. And, and the public may go online to USPSOperationSanta.com and get a letter that a child wrote or that a parent wrote. My kids are still too little to write, but you know, I've had such a hard year. I've lost my job. Um, I, I have illness uh, and I, I have not been able to work. Uh, so Santa, I've got four kids, please, you know, names, shoe sizes, clothing sizes, they're in the letters from the moms. And, but there's no real guide of, of our, I saw the need first to create public awareness of this program. You can adopt a letter to Santa and second to, uh, give people a guide as to, you know, tips for adopting letters. And third, uh, to create awareness among those in need that they can indeed write to Santa Claus at this, in this address at the North pole, there's a, an address on elf road and in the, and the website. So, the website I put up with photos and so on cr really creates a great guide to the program for those who want to uh, adopt letters and for those who are writing the letters. So org is the site to go to to learn more about this program. And with donations we get, and we get a lot of donations, uh, we don't buy the gifts anymore. We, we I'll go down to Target and buy a lot of Target gift cards, $100 gift cards, and we send them to the letters that we adopt from the Postal Services website. So our donations go for that. And, you know, we have a $10,000 a month grant from Google uh, for free advertising. And Google's amazing. So that they do that. And they do it for my website, tobaccofree.org as well. But at Christmas time, people are thinking about be an elf. Org. Sorry, just to put in and hijack it, I know that there's a number of other operations and uh, organizations which are doing very similar things around Christmas. So if you can't take part in beanelf.org for whatever reason, then just have a look around your local community because there will be people who will need your help, particularly around about Christmas time, which for some people is the hardest time of the year. So look into it. So now we're coming full circle as you are returning to your first love of acting following all of these career paths. So with so much success in everything that you've put in uh, to your various careers, what's drawn you back to performance at this later stage of your career? Well, uh, you know, it's something I've been trained in 
in something I'm good at and I have the skills and I would love to do more of it. Um, I've been offered a part in, in uh, a small production and I'm going to take it, um, but not going to talk more about that. But I would love to do more acting. I, I'm a man of passions like Senator Thompson. He could go and act in movies uh, and he could be a senator. Some part of me wants to run for office. I'm passionate about that as well. So what comes my way, uh, I will carpe diem and uh, say, where do I sign? <laughs> well, you, you definitely are a man of many talents and you wear a lot of hats. So we wish you the best of luck in everything. But the one thing we do want to know from you today is what your nominate five is. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five, or three, or four, or six, or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. I've really got to give a warning when that music's coming on. I yes, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You'd be surprised right. at the number of people that just go, Jesus, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> too many people had their volume turned up way too loud. Let's come on. Uh, so, Steve, educate our guest as to what Nominate 5 is. Certainly, Andrew. Well, Nominate 5 is the part of the show where we get our guest, if we have one, to nominate five things. Now, the things are usually very, very personal to a particular guest. So it might be five of their favourite songs that have ever been used in a movie or five of their favourite pieces of cinematography, whatever. And this week, we have, for Patrick to nominate the five most inspirational actors that you have worked with. Wow. All right. Well, I'm going to start that one. That right. That's easy. Shelley Duvall. Shelley, <laughs> my old love. Good Lord. She is an inspiring a, a woman who um, did well with Robert Altman and uh, became a star and gave us The Shining and Olive Oil and Popeye. Shelley inspires me. Uh, Julie Christie on the set of Nashville. Uh, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Inspiration in a different way. Yeah. For, for more than that, uh, she, she was an amazing woman. Uh, yeah, it's funny, the unconscious mind where it takes us. Yeah, you're right. Uh, okay, that might be an influence. Hmm. Uh, what else? Jeff Goldblum as well. You know, Jeff was uh, really just going to be himself and he was going to let the light shine of taking parts of himself and bringing those to his roles which he has done over and over and i admire jeff goldblum quite a lot you got two more i like i like a lot andrew prine because andrews a, you know was a he played a cantankerous nasty self-serving guy in the eliminators and he brought such humanity to his parts. And I want to finally go with Keith Carradine, who was in Nashville as well. And Keith uh, did some wonderful parts and did uh, he's had such a great career as an actor. And Keith inspires me as well. So there's your five. No, a fantastic five great actors there. Uh, Andrew Prine, uh, and he's still going today. Uh, I remember he was pretty big in the V series, before Eliminators, and that's kind of what they knew. And in Eliminators, he was kind of playing 
I, I guess you can call him is is the Han Solo type. Would you agree yes. on that, Steve? Yeah, it's sort of like the the cantankerous, self obsessed uh, swashbuckler who starts to learn more and care a bit more about people other than himself. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yes, the the, the simple minded one out of the group who ends up saving the day by punching a keyboard. <laughs> if, if that was the if that was the case, I would have saved my entire life for the amount of times I have hit my keyboard. Oh dear. <laughs> but um, no, I, I like Andrew Pratt. That's all I had on that. Sorry. Okay, good. <laughs> right, well, in that case, uh, Patrick, it has been an absolute joy to have you with us. You, there's so much stuff that we've gone over, and it has been such a pleasure to talk about someone who's just got such passion about these things. So thank you very much for coming on. Well, th- thanks for having me, and uh, I love the work you're doing, and I see why you've got so many people in Hollywood listening to you. Because this is in-depth. I mean, these are stories that, that there's no time to tell these in most uh, podcasts and shows and so on. So what you're doing is really uh, giving people in Hollywood uh, an insight into, a, 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 for example, a method of acting or what went on on a set and how to not be self-destructive. I mean, those are things that I think are a great message. And and thank you for doing this show and what you're doing. Thank you very much. And before you go, we want to run a little bit of uh, promotion by you. So obviously, uh, The Gilded Leaf is a book that you can buy, but it is also a project that you can buy. So all of you executives out there that are now looking for the next big uh, series, mini-series, uh, Martin Scorsese Irishman style movie that's four hours long. <laughs> yeah, you know, you want the new Boardwalk Empire? You've got it right here. You, you've got it right here, and people should reach out to you, Patrick. Obviously, they, they can't get you through an agent because you currently don't have one at the moment. Uh, but how would people best get in touch with you? Would it be through Tobacco Free? Well, they can certainly go to IMDb Pro, IMDb Professional, or you can just go to patrickreynolds.com. And I'm oh, pretty yes. sure my cell phone is on the uh, on that page uh, as the contact. So uh, I bring it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, se- serious offers only. Yes, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and if you, if you need a writer, I'll tackle it. <laughs> really? Well, yeah, yeah. You have to you have to read the book first. I, I, I'm sure a copy of that book will come my way. <clears throat> look, look, look. That's look. so funny. You know, I, I love it. And and uh, don't count on it. My real friends buy the book. My my fake friends do. <laughs> oh, he's got you there. Yeah, he's got oh. me there. Maybe maybe I'm in LA next year, I'll buy one. If if you're really gonna hold me over the coals like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So there's um, beanelf.org as well. And obviously, if there's any uh, people in Hollywood, any actors or anything like that that love the sound of this, check that out as well. Uh, reach out to Patrick. I'm sure he'll tell you even more about it. And, oh my God, you've got so much to promote. <laughs> I know. I there's do. so much going on. That, that doesn't obviously. even mention my, my political website, congressmajority.org, which is where I might take the rest of my life. Because you have to follow your passion. And I'm passionate about electing Democrats, liberals to Congress, uh, and telling them why. And we don't mention any candidate or PAC in that. We just say, vote Democrat. And here's why. 
Go to congressmajority.org and you'll see the ad. Make sure you've got uh, your tick in the box. And speaking <laughs> of what's in the box... What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? You absolute segue-stealing swine. I was I was building up to do that segue and you stole it from me. I hate your guts, Steve Hester. You gotta be quicker than that. Oh I was. I was I was hoping, please God, do not let him latch on to that segue. And you well, did. You guys you guys at least could have put Mandroid's line when he's looking at the car and he says the guy says, I'm made out of metal and the guy says, you know, you need some body work and and I get out of the car, I say, are you talking to me? Like De Niro in Taxi Driver. And I get out of the car and I point my arm, which is a gun, and I blow up his car and I say, you're the one who needs body, body work. work. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear that. I want to hear that line in the podcast. You're the one that needs body work. Yeah. Yes. That, that's, got, that's going on right at the beginning. Yeah. So, Steve, oh, yeah. as it's the last segment, explain what's in the box. Okay, what's in the box is the part of the show where Andy tries to improve my movie education by getting me away from all of the big blockbusters that fill the uh, the landscape with nothing but explosions. So Andrew is going to put his hand into a box and then pull out the name of a film that is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. If I have seen it, then we keep pulling out names until we find one that I haven't seen, and then we go away and I watch it the night before we record the next show. So, Andrew, what have you got for us? Well, funny enough, this is the second Kubrick movie that you've got to watch. Okay. Which is 2001 A Space Odyssey, can you believe I've seen bits of it. Does it count? No, it does not count if you've seen bits of it. I know the ending. So, watch the entire movie. My God. I I don't know how you've managed to survive 40 plus years by only seeing parts of movies. I've been waiting Uh, for them to be parodied in The Simpsons. All right. (laughs) Terrible. Well, that's that's your your movie anyway. So, listen, uh, we're going to wrap this up. Patrick... Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, we want to hear all about your success, what is going on from now on, and how everything kind of works out. Keep us in the loop. Thank you. It's, it's an honor to be on. I, I loved it. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure having you. And uh, I will catch up with you towards the time that this episode will be released, so you will know uh, when it's coming out. Yes. Uh... I should be very pleased about that. I'm sure you will, sir. Now, that seems to be it for this week. So, yet again, another thank you to our guest, Patrick Reynolds. And that is it from me. And I guess uh, that's it from me as well. Otherwise, I'll be here all alone. Yes. Bye now. In in nine minutes, I've got another meeting starting. So, with a company that wants to sponsor BNL. So, yes. All right. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Your timing is immaculate. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.